Okay. We got a... We got a jerk. Jerk. There is no Craig. Close enough. Sorry, Craig never joins. Sometimes Craig joins for a while. Craig was actually working properly, and then it just stopped entirely. Try tried recording my GM or my my game that I was running for a while, and uh, Craig always always crapped out after like fifteen minutes. Yeah, we had that problem too. Yeah, it's just weird because like the last few weeks, Craig was working. Like, lasting to the end of the session, and then, you know, it's not even joining. It's weird. Anyway, so, let's see. Can you do a welcome to, yeah. Do you want to do it, it? or shall I? (laughs) You go for it. Okay. Welcome to Flail Forwards. Whether you want to be here or not, you're stuck until we're done with you. That's totally how this works now. Just deal with that. Anyway. Sweet. I'm excited. <laughs> Disables your close tab button. Don't even try it. Yeah. So so today we're going to be talking about game design on RPGs as usual. In particular, we're going to be covering uh, the GM and sort of what kind of tools you can design for the GM to use so that, you know, they can better play the game and such, and so that they can provide a better experience for the players, because this is basically who you're building the game for, is the GM, and the GM builds the game for the players in a way, so we're kind of on like a second order level of things. Anyway, for tonight, we have Monty with us as our pet GM to interrogate. Hooray! And we also have Mark here. Hello. And I almost forgot to introduce myself. I'm Catrice. I'll be your moderator person, hostess, something. I don't know. Whatever. There's a word for it. And whatever the word is, I'm that word. There you go. MC? Yeah, sure. What would MC even be? Mess. They have a hammer, at least, sometimes. That's a bad joke. Oof. Yep. That's my GM style right there. Can't touch this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. All right. Well, so, where do we start, Kit? Uh, I'm thinking probably the best place to start is, before we do anything, it's probably to defend find the GM's role because like it seems straightforward but there's a lot of games that have a lot of takes on it so we should probably cover what kind of GM role we're going to be covering before we actually cover what we give them okay so So I'd say that there's probably sort of the traditional GM role which would be one person who is responsible for sort of the the world outside of the player characters. Um, so they would mm-hmm. be sort of setting the stage, talking about what the environments or maybe what the conflicts are um, that the players would then interact with. Mm-hmm. And I could see that being uh, a great person to give resources to being able to set up that world, those conflicts, and being able to keep the players engaged in that stream. 
Um, I'd also say that there's sort of the idea of the game master being a role that can be uh, divided amongst other players, where that's sort of the GM full or the GM less game, where there's still someone who is potentially leading the game at certain points, um, and there might still be tools to be able to do that function of who are these other antagonists or um, other characters or other agents that are in the world and environment that you want to interact with. Yeah, one thing we do definitely have to point out is that even in a GM-less game, you still have a GM. Right. It's just distributing the responsibilities among the other players, or certain player might pick it up temporarily and then give it to someone else, but you kind of can't have a game without a GM for the most part. Like, it's possible, but then the GM duties fall on on the game itself. Like, it still has to be done, no matter who's doing it, somebody has to actually do the roles of these things like i i attack the monster what happens mm -hmm. i you need an answer for that and even if you're letting the player who does the attack come up with the answer themselves they're still taking on the role of the gm temporarily to explain what's going on kind of thing so gm covers like rules, explanations, or uh, to say what's in an environment, what they're doing. Like, no matter who happens to be the GM, they are describing what happens kind of thing, or at least what's there. Yep, I, I agree with that. I think that's sort of also where you end up in a point where, uh, like, if the GM role is like you can try to put that off into like the game playing itself and that gets more into the like um the realm of board games as like these tabletop adventures where like kingdom death might play where that gm role has been shuffled off to the game as much as possible um as opposed to the players themselves but um i think in terms of like the role play aspect we want to find the um, the ability, I guess, for an individual player to be able to influence the game in the way they want, or in the um, telling the story that they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely something in something like Kingdom Death. It's it's difficult to influence the game overall as a player mm -hmm. um, because that game is going to run over you in the process <laughs> of trying to do that. Um, but yeah, sorry. I no, just actually totally fine. Um, yeah. Actually, what we really should get into before we go beyond that is now that we've established basically what the GM's role is, and we have a GM here, such as Monty, what do you want? Uh, what do I want? Um, actually, <laughs> like in the entire discussion leading up to this, I was like, what do I actually want? And one of the big things I realized I want as a GM, um, and this is probably from playing way too much D&D, and way too much just other games because I like you mentioned the GM you know teaches the rules to everyone and knows everyone I can never remember the rules to the game that I'm playing um, even as GM I can never like like I can't internalize that like too much like either I get like either I will get the rule wrong or 
I've read too many RPGs in the past month or two in which I start just mixing up rules to games. Um, that said, one of the things I would love to see in a game is here is a section. Here are all the rules that in a pinch, um, these are some complicated rules and you can just ignore them and replace them with this simple mechanic. Mm. Like if, if you, if you're having trouble and just need to speed it along, there's, you know, there's the rule of just, just roll the die, like just roll the die and we'll figure out what happens. But, um, something a little bit more encompassing of that. Uh, like a so, little bit more formalized of that would would be. Would it sounds be nice. like basically a simplified cheat sheet. Like here's the cheat sheet of the normal rules, and then here is like a cheat cheat sheet mm -hmm. of here's the simple stuff that you do if you don't want to deal with the rules. Yeah, I mean, we'll go we'll go with the simple. Uh, you know, doing grapple rules for any random version of D and D. It's like. It's like okay, there's actual rules and steps and everything to this, or you can just roll a d20 and we'll just figure it out. Like, Which but if there was like a simplified version of just dealing with a rule you don't know, I I know that there was um, an article that discussed this uh, about designing RPG rules, where you sort of have layers of like the core mechanic should be so simple that if you forget everything else, you just rely on this core mechanic of like. You have an attribute, and you roll the dice, and you see if that's good enough to like pass what should be your your challenge or something like that. Like if that's your core mechanic, then if all of those other complicated rules fail, you can always depend on the, like game running itself based on just that rule. Everything mm -hmm. else is a complexity that adds to the experience that is tacked on top of that. So. Um, the the variables uh what situational modifiers what's uh what happens when you're having a dialogue as opposed to a um i don't know like a, a combat scene or resolving over huge amounts of time those are all things that can be added on to make the game more complex more interesting but ultimately it all boils back down to that one core system that um like you can rely on the players getting back to and that's what it sounds like to me is that you're looking for some indication of like if you forget this is how you do it this will your game will still run as long as you remember this like one rule or these like small set of core rules mm -hmm. is that right yeah pretty much that that that's me to you know go along with it um the more i think about it though the more i'm just like yeah you could just roll the standard die whatever whatever mechanic that game uses as its core mechanic and just you know add a stat in, add a modifier, and be done. Um, that's Because that's usually what the rule is in the first place, but but yeah, so some games like to like to complicate that up a little bit. Yeah, I have it a little bit more complicated, but not that much more so for, like, the core setup. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the same thing for, like, Powered by the Apocalypse games. Like, it's a little more complicated, but not that much more. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in in all fairness, maybe I played a little bit too much like BattleTech this week. That's that's, that's <laughs> okay. quite possibly why this this is in the forefront of my mind. <laughs> but that's its own story and not not quite relevant to RPG design. No, it kind of is because <clears throat> BattleTech in particular has a bit of a <laughs> reputation for being sorta clunky. I mean, it's a 
it's a war game instead of a, a RPG, though there are RPG variants of Mech Warrior specifically. And, but, and some, some of the people who play get really into recreating battles in the universe, which, I mean, it's as much of an RPG as, uh, as going to a Civil War reenactment is LARPing. It's not dissimilar in some ways with some people. Yeah, fair enough, though. To be fair, trying to replicate a battle in Battletech when it's very RNG-dependent makes that kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I should rephrase. Not not replicate the battle, but basically play out the battle and j- just see what happens this time. Like th- That's usually, in my experience, in what I've read. Uh uh-huh. What tends to happen? It's it's not a full on replication. Like the one side is not always going to lose, except sometimes you do set it up that way where the one side is going to lose. It's just by how much are you going to lose? I mean, to be fair, even in LARPing, they tend to have that happen as well. That's true. My my personal LARPing experience is very limited. Yeah, even like the historical LARPing. Like I don't, I haven't, I haven't done very much myself, but I. I have known that, yeah, there are people that even like Civil War reenactment, they still often have situations where they're like, yeah, we'll just do this within reason and we'll see what happens. And sometimes the wrong side wins. (laughs) (laughs) It's not unfortunate. I'm technically unfortunate, though it does make things a lot more interesting. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, what was there? There's a South Park episode about that. I mean, you could have just said that at any point about anything. That's uh, fair. But, you know, <laughs> the whole the whole Simpsons did it. You know, there's a South Park or Simpsons episode that has talked about it in some fashion. Yeah, usually one or the other. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's not bad. But for these kinds of things, like to get back to the core rule like this is actually a good foundation to build your game upon um one of the things that i have personally found is important for the core rule though is that the players have a relatively good idea of what their chances are upon using their core mechanic Mm -hmm. which is kind of opposite of how designers tend to look at it like if you go to say the um the subreddit for uh tabletop game design uh they basically every single well not every single thread but almost all of them are like here's my dice mechanic how can i make it like more precisely accurate like they want you rolling like 27 d6 and then remove 10 then you have to multiply the results so that you get this beautiful uh bell curve out of it and it's like this is not actually what the gm or the players need like they don't care about your bell curve yeah what um like i'm no good at running them but like that, that's why one of my favorite games uh, to play is either Call of Cthulhu or one of the one of the various like Warhammer games in which you're using percentile dice. Like you, you just right there know exactly what your chances are 
of making that roll. Um, it's it's nice and clean, and usually doesn't involve too many modifiers uh, from the other side. It's just two hit is this. If you don't do it on this guy, you won't do it on any other person. Like that's that's that that's not where the uh, I was going to say that's not where the random rolls, but by definition, that's random. But it, like that's not where the tension is necessarily. Mm. The tension is, is like, oh, I hit the person. Do I actually do anything to it? Um, that is in combat in Call of Cthulhu, which you probably should never get into combat in Call of Cthulhu. But in Warhammer, there's plenty, plenty of combat. Yeah. Warhammer, it's much more fire at something until eventually you hit it. Mm-hmm. I think still yeah. the point is really just understanding what it is that your action can do, right? Or like, even if mm-hmm. it's a likelihood of success, it's just knowing that the the actions that you're taking have some amount of consequence or like what the repercussion is. Um, and mm-hmm. the better a player understands that, the better they're able to like make decisions. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're really getting at? Well, I was getting at the idea of it's it's an educated decision that they have to be mm-hmm. making. If they're not making an educated decision, it's like, pick a number between 1 and 10. Like, go, right now, pick one. Right. Three. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, like yeah. wait, what? Like, what are you supposed to do with that? Like, there's, there's no information to base your answer off of. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, some games add a little bit of tension by hiding the the chance if you're if you're encountering something unfamiliar or something you don't know. Um, an example would be, you know, just AC in, in Dungeons and Dragons. If you're fighting a random dragon, like it's kind of behooves you not to tell the player what the dragon's AC is um, if it's the first time they encounter a dragon. Like if they didn't know dragons existed, you know, that's. That's fine. Um, the GM check the name of the game. Well, yes, that's right. <laughs> but I mean the the characters. I, I know what you mean. I know what characters. You mean. The the idea though is is I'm kind of not super yeah about hiding that information from the players. Though I do get the point behind it as well. I mean, but... I I'm not saying like entirely hide it. Like the players, the players definitely should be permitted to ask questions. Like. Like, is it possible for me to even hit this thing? It's like, well, you look at it, and you get a distinctive impression that no, it is not possible for you to actually arm this creature in any fashion. Um, well, there's a shed skill on the ground that you can see. You have a dagger. You look at the dagger, you look at the scale on the ground. The scale is thicker than your dagger is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> I mean, that's any number of, of examples, like, where you can where you can hide information to to kind of increase the tension a little bit but but you should never you should never not answer your players questions like your players are going to have those questions like can i hurt it can i do this can i do that and it should not just be a standard like empathy role like it like your character has a modicum of, of intelligence and <laughs> you know situational awareness you know at least most characters do i should say um some of the ones that don't are fun to play. <laughs> That's true. I, I love playing just dumbest bricks characters because it uh, it usually gets really fun. But I, I do usually find that I enjoy the characters that oh they're very intelligent but they have the common sense of a brick. 
Those are fun, too. <laughs> but, yeah, like, the... There is a thing... I, I, I mean, I will reiterate this again, because I can't stop for some reason, but there is a thing about in, introducing some kind of unknown tension. Mm-hmm. But, to get to the point of that, the tension... Regardless of what the tension type you're adding is, the tension itself, like, are we going to make this through alive? Can I actually do anything about this? Oh god, everything's on fire, what do I do? Mm -hmm. It's like, your core mechanic with your dice or whatever you have, playing cards, you name it. Like... This has to be fairly simple to understand on the player's side, to understand what their actions are and what the, the relative chance of something happening is. So like in Mark's game, for example, you basically build up a deck. You don't have access to the full pack of cards at any one time, do you? Right. So... Let's say you have a certain number of spades cards. You know what the value on the spades are. You basically know, to a rough extent, what your chances are compared to other things. Like, if you try to use one of the cards, you basically know roughly how effective it is to some degree, right? Yep, that's exactly it. So mm -hmm. you have some knowledge of like what the cards are that are in the Game Master's uh, like deck of cards that builds up the um, the adversity, like the environments of chance of failure. Um, so you have like a distribution, I guess, that you could have in mind, and you'd know that like they might have the cards from one to five, um, and they're going to flip some of them up. So um, the percentage is like intentionally obfuscated; shouldn't matter to the player, uh, but they should have some gauge of like okay, well, I know that if a four or a five comes up in my chosen suit, I'm going to lose this test. But anything else than that, and I'm in a good spot. Uh, so that's like two cards of that whole stack. I'm probably okay with the three. Um, so I can play a three of spades and feel pretty good about myself. Um, mm. and that's, yeah. So they, they don't need to know the same, like, it's 60% success or whatever. Mm. But... Um, but yeah, that's the, the general idea of how good they should feel going into it. So I, I, I have kind of like a, a follow-up question for that uh, system. Like, mm -hmm. like, do the players, is the deck constructed before the game? Like, I, like forgive me, I'm not, I'm not too familiar with, yeah. Yeah, with the way your game's set up. Uh, yeah, so the, the Game Master controls a deck of cards that is set up before play. Um, there are elements written on the cards that reflect the game world that everyone is playing in. Um, when a player does a test, um, they play a card from their hand, and each suit corresponds to the type of action. So uh, clubs re represents a physical action, hearts represents an emotional action. Um, when they play that card, the game master also says how difficult that kind of approach is to the situation. So they might say, well, that's a difficulty three or a difficulty four. And that difficulty number represents the number of cards the game master then flips up from their deck to act as sort of the counterbalance of the world. 
So the game master would say that's difficulty four. They flip up four cards from their deck and they compare any clubs that would compare to the, or the, they compare the suit of cards that the player played with whatever mm-hmm. cards they flipped up. So if the player played the three of clubs, the game master flips up four cards from the deck and it shows up with the ace of clubs, the two of spades, the three of diamonds, and the four of hearts. Um, then they compare the strength of the two club suits and they say that the player has beaten the game master in this case. Um, if any of the elements on the suit of cards, so let's say the ace of clubs was the one that came up, but it had something written on it that says uh, dragons. There are dragons in this world. And if the player was doing an action that's specifically related to fighting dragons or whatever they wanted to punch a dragon, um, that the value of that card in the game master's deck is now doubled. So instead oh. of an ace, it would be a two. Um, so it just represents those are the forces of the world that are fighting against the player, and they're more prevalent when you're actually engaging in that action. Okay. Um, um, I have a further follow-up question, but the, the, the pizza has arrived far earlier okay. than it should have. So <laughs> I will be back in like two minutes as I this go meet not a bad thing. All right. Give me one second. music yeah. from Monty Python, because we have a Monty, so... I can just keep rambling about my game. Go right ahead. But yeah, so the game also has some ways of hiding exactly how risky an action is. And part of that is because I want it to make it harder than, like, I want the players to feel like they're in a good position, try a task and end up facing the, um, like, either the success at a cost or the failure possibilities more often than, than they might think. Um, and that's because the game does rely on you um, either working with your teammates to try to solve tasks, and there are a few ways that you help each other, um, or also you have these abilities to um, give up an aspect of your character to gain a temporary boost. Um, and these are four things that I wanted from the game, but um, I wanted to put the characters in difficult positions of, I might not succeed, or I, I think I might succeed in this. They try the task, and now they're faced with the uh, question of pushing themselves, uh, giving something up to succeed in this task, or needing to rely on other people um, to, to push it through. So. The, the actual percentage isn't there in the player's mind. It's just more of a feeling of how likely they are to, to be successful. So, um. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the largest parts of this entire thing, though, is exactly what you just said. It's the... They have to feel like they have a rough idea mm-hmm. of what the chances are. They don't have to have an exact amount. Mm-hmm. You can have unexpected things show up that they couldn't have predicted, but for the most part, you generally want them to be like, okay, you feel relatively confident you can probably succeed at this. And a lot of these um, things that you get in many RPGs, like not actually not even full RPGs, but the ones that they come up in, like, subreddit, for example. They're so focused on trying to make this 
perfect, elegant bell curve that it becomes this completely janky, weird-ass, bizarre, complex system that neither the players nor the GM are actually all that certain what the difficulty is. So the GM can't present the players with a reasonably difficult proposition that they have to face because yeah. the GM doesn't know what the difficulty is and the players can't determine what actions are more effective than others because they don't know what yeah. their chances well, are. One one quick way of kind of addressing that is in, in the rules you could you could list examples of the difficulty and the rough percent chance of a player of a skill or talent or whatever has to actually meet that difficulty um and that would be good if it were written down and clear mm -hmm. like this is something that like you said percentile dice are kind of inherently good at this just because oh i know exactly what i need i need a uh, 65 percent to beat this thing that's pretty straightforward mm. Especially if you have like a plus 40 bonus to it. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, then I know that I only have basically a 25-ish percent chance to fail. This is this is easy and good. If you have something where it's like, I don't actually know what my chances of success are. And if I get a plus two bonus on it, I don't know actually how big of a bonus a plus two is because it's a bell curve instead of linear, so it's like each plus one bonus is worth a different amount than the previous bonus. What are my actual chances? Like, do I have a good chance or do I have bad chance? Is this 50 or 75%? Yeah. Like, this is important to know and to convey to, to both the players, but also the GM. Like, the GM needs this information if they do not have it. Like, if they have to sit there with a calculator to figure out what they should set the difficulty to in for a particular role, then you've just made the GM's job a lot harder than it really should be. That's true. And I'm, I will say that Genesis does kind of suffer from that, but doesn't it's not as esoteric. Like after after doing one or two roles you kind of figure it out, but it's still it's still kind of problematic for the system. And any system that doesn't just have number, like, like number of successes or a number on the die gets a little bit wonky. Um, yeah, even successes can be tricky depending on how they're handled. But mm -hmm. the point is legibility, clarity, like being able to make an informed decision, even if that information isn't always consistent like oh dragons popped up you didn't expect it was going to be dragons but it's on the card this is important enough because it means that something can pop up that was unexpected it's a sudden challenge you didn't think you were going to run into but that's fine like it's okay if that's the case as long as it's not showing up on such a frequent basis that the players 
have no idea what their actual role is. Like if it's like there's one card in the deck of 52, maybe the GM's only using 20 cards, but a one in 20 chance that something weird will pop up is not that super great. It's like, yeah, it could be weird. It might be awkward, but we can generally tell that 19 out of 20 of the time, my estimation of my chances of doing this is relatively accurate. Yeah. I think that is important to um, play with and understand. I think the same goes for the game master to have a good understanding of what the scale is of the adversity that they put the player in front of. Um, it's even looking at it from the D&D perspective. If you know what the DC is, you have a general idea of how likely a player is to succeed or fail, depending on the approach they take. That's also kind of like the purpose of what the challenge rating is supposed to be as well, even if it's right. not very accurate. Exactly. But it um, should tell you that if you're in combat, if you're throwing a CR-14 enemy at the mon at monster at the players, then the players should have roughly this chance to succeed at dealing with it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a great tool for the game master. Like those challenge ratings, even though they, they might be a little wonky, I think they give a general sense of what to do or how to design something um, to give players a sense of challenge or um, problems that are scaled to them. Because um, I think it is really easy to not understand where that perfect balance is of this is exciting and achievable, but also challenging. Um, so if I suddenly went to a, uh, my Dungeons and Dragons game and I had everything was DC 35, not so fun for anyone. Um, so Especially at level one. Exactly. Um, so getting a sense of that scale is really helpful for a game master. Um, and I think that that's also something that needs to be imparted maybe even more um, specifically or directly than it might be in other games um, where you rely on the game master to sort of develop that into it, like into it that difficulty by themselves. Um, but they might not explicitly state, well, okay, a, a DC, I don't know, 12 uh, skill test means that the player is going to have to roll a 20 sided die, add their modifier. First level character's modifier is usually somewhere around plus two, plus three. So they have about a 50% chance of succeeding at this like DC 12. Um, and that might not be something that a game master would have considered before they set what that DC is. Um, it's just the example from D&D that I think most people can understand, but I think it applies for all different types of games. Um, I mean, one of the ways you can introduce it, um, I guess it's not really introducing it, but one of the ways you can expose the GM to it is to, is to start low and let, mm -hmm. and let them understand that as the players get better and better, that they can like they will or they should be able to intuit that like you know something is getting is getting too easy like it's now getting too easy let's let's start increasing the difficulty um because you know certain situations in the world start happening or certain or you have more exposure to like you know bad creatures or you have more exposure to you know people who are better at 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 doing negotiations uh than you like there's yeah. a 
there's a slow kind of ramp up that you can kind of intuit and be like, oh, my players are succeeding a lot. Let's, you know, let's throw let's throw a politician at them and see and see right. how well they they talk with the politician as opposed to you know the 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 a local like innkeeper mm-hmm. and trying to get information out of the politician versus him is is going to be much more. Um, this assumes that the politician knows anything in the first place. It's true. Um, I mean, just... they're a politician. They probably don't, but they're going to sound like they do, and they're going to run around in circles and never actually answer any of your questions. Mm-hmm. And and they might be more instinctively able to identify bullshit, you know, um, just because of all of, all of it that they deal with it in their daily lives. Mm-hmm. That they know, they recognize the tools that they themselves use. Yes. And so it's like, it's, I mean, this can be a commentary on politics if we want, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of those, it's, it's one of those things where if, if you give the GM the chance to at least experience it and experience the escalation, it, it also helps. Um, but, but yeah, having, having a page just devoted to like, here's, Here's what percentage chances look like in in our in our skill checks in our like skill tests skill checks whatever you want to call it mm. um, would would be kind of nice. D and D doesn't have that problem because the D twenty is pretty pretty clear, but um, some games that start using D sixes and, and weird escalating like multiple successes grant you things or or you get a boost by hitting every four like if you're playing like like savage worlds or something like that like it's um understanding what multiple successes do and like how they influence your game is definitely a a, a, it's it's not something that you can always immediately intuit like not every gm is going to be very good at math basically is what i'm saying yeah yeah that totally makes sense and this is useful information for a GM to have so that they're able to not worry about the math. They can just basically be like, I need to add something that's difficult for the players. I need to add something that'll be easy to use on my part and interesting to use on their part. Mm -hmm. Like, part of the nature of why we're building a game in the first place and designing anything is so that the GM has an easier time doing this because, as we were mentioning before the show started, you do not need a game system at all to to roleplay. Like, it's not a necessary requirement. You can build stuff up on, on the spot as needed. It's just if you have a set of established rules or a setting or whatever, you're you're basically giving the GM easier access to what they need to make things interesting so that they don't have to do it themselves on the spur of the moment. And, and here I thought uh, people only become RPG designers because they hate Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's the only reason. I think that it's actually more of something that when somebody creates something that's not Dungeons and Dragons, but they've played it before, usually it's because D and D somehow did not meet what their expectations were for the GM tools. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a tool that they wanted to use, 
and it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Or it, um, it, it's not functional in the way that they, they need it to be for their play style. What, one of the questions I wanted to ask Mark is the, the, in, in your card system, mm -hmm. um, do the, the players don't know what cards are in the deck before the session, uh, or do they? Players do. They okay. know, so they actually help design the deck with the terms that are written on it. Okay. Um, so they have a rough idea of all the cards that can come up. Um, so if, if they have an idea of, of the cards that can come up, is there, any, is there anything in your, in your system that prevents them from essentially gaming it, in which like, they realize that up front they got all the really good cards? Maybe in the first, you know, five draws, they were, they were like, "I'm, this is really good, but it's all downhill from here." Is there anything that that prevents the players from just, like, I guess, burning the deck? Yeah, via uh, so, stupid skill checks. Right, right. So that was one of the ways that I wanted to approach like this design. I could either say, "Well, I could have it so that the game master's deck depletes over time." Um, so one check means that those cards go in the discard and that those are visible to the players and they can game around that and, and use that to their advantage if they're paying attention. Or I could just not worry about it and have the game master reshuffle those cards that were revealed after every run, every, after every draw. Mm -hmm. um, so it always became sort of a static um, risk. And the design decision that I ended up going with was to have it reshuffle. So after every task, every, every skill check, whatever cards are revealed get shuffled right back into the Game Master's deck. Mm -hmm. um, so there's sort of a static level of risk that the players assume. Um, it, it better reflects, I think, um, the worlds, and then the things that the Game Master can tweak are how many of those cards get drawn. Um, so I felt that that gave a, a more intuitive understanding for both the Game Master and the players to be able to um, evenly assign the difficulty rather than um, having it deplete over time and having both the players and the game master try to keep track of what cards came up in the discard. Um, so that gives it an overall balance in terms of the risk level that is associated with drawing a single card from the game master's deck. Does that make sense? I know that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, that's how I approached it. Um, but I could see that there's benefit to saying the players have potentially seen some of these, like all the high value cards came out in the first few draws, and now they know that they can get away with riskier actions. Um, and that could have been a way to play the game. It just didn't feel right for Praxis and why. I, yeah. So uh, I moved away from that. Okay. I mean, I mean, far be it for me to, because I don't, I don't know the the, the individual rules. But uh, have you considered doing it uh, per scene instead of like per per test or for the whole uh, session? Um, I think the the playtests that I ran were mostly for a per game, so I don't think I ever did it per scene. Um, but I could see that being a really interesting way of playing around it, where it was like um, like a particular struggle or fight where you had it as. Uh, um, like the cards from the game master's deck slowly got depleted. Um, I've never tried that, so it could be something that I mess around with and, and see if that changes things. Because um, it would give a little bit 
I don't know, potentially some extra incentive or extra um, gaming that uh, a player could do on how they want to approach it. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to demo that sometime. Yeah, I mean, the, just with the whole, the only thing I'd be concerned about is like the one player who's who's the good card counter. But honestly, like in the, most of the players that I've played with uh, more recently, um, the 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 push from power gaming to just being you know a part of a storytelling thing has definitely changed in the past. I'd say ten years of me playing, um, it seems to be less power gaming. People want to try to. Um, want to try to win your RPG versus, you know, people who just want interesting things to happen. Exactly. And I did try to make sure that there was opportunity for both of these players to exist in, at the same table, um, which is maybe not the smartest thing, but it's, um, it does work for how practice is designed right now, where the people who are looking to min-max have that opportunity. Characters or players who are looking to tell the story have that opportunity. And in my experience, both of them have been at the table at the same time and were able to engage in the game in the way they wanted to um, without any downsides to their play style. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, there might be opportunities to say this is potentially a more gamified way of playing a certain encounter. Um, and that could be something that's left up to the, the game master or that I can demo for myself and, and see if that works. But I, don't I think that's a good suggestion. I think that's a problem, actually. Like, saying that these two players can exist at the table at the same time, it's like, that's not a bad idea, especially because any group of friends that you have, there's probably going to be a variety in play styles between them. Yeah. If you're just basically like, yeah, we all want to play an RPG together, but we can't let... Bob join because Bob doesn't play games the same way we do. Like, exactly. That's not a good deal and you're going to basically end up having a split in your friends or they just won't play that game. Yeah. Right. I've, I've definitely encountered that enough times in my life in which, in which they are, they're, they're games or people that we won't play with or that aren't, aren't necessarily invited because yeah, their, their play styles are just diametrically opposed. You know? You have the yeah. one group. You have the one group who's like, let's play D and D, but make all of our characters like misfit characters. Mm -hmm. So like, so like, you can't be a tiefling bard. Your tiefling has to be, you know, the the fighter or the barbarian. Like you can't. Like the idea is that is that you choose racing classes that don't fit well together, and uh, but you always have the one player who like somehow finds a way around that and like you know pulls up the weird rule, and then they become you know, the quote-unquote, you know, powerful player. It, right. It's fun for that one individual, but it's never, it's never fun for anyone else. And so you always try to... You slowly begin to, for lack of a better word, call those people out of your groups if, if that's not the type of game that you want to play. Right. And that's unfortunate. If, if there was a way to, add, to have them both involved, you know, I, I would love that as a GM. Yeah, I think that's actually a, it's, I don't know if I'd call it a tool, but I think it's part of the design of the game. Like, if you design your game so that both of these major opposing kind of concepts are at least partially catered to, mm -hmm. then it actually makes the GM's job so much easier in the long run. So it's probably a good idea. Also, mm -hmm. hi, Kabar. Hello. 
Obviously. Hi. So from the very first snippet I walked into, there are a lot of people I know who are not vacuum one or the other, and there are people who like engaging in weird mechanics and making meaningful characters at the same time. A lot of the people I play with will <laughs> do uh, go out of their way to, like, like the ones I play tactically, will, will go out of their way to making the most interesting character that is the, these bunch of positive modifiers. And that's its own, like, that's its own thing that I found a lot more that often than a pure story game or pure, uh, you know, min-maxer, but that's just my personal experience, and it's clearly not the norm, so I don't know why I'm talking about it, but yeah. I know it's okay. I, I, I do agree that, like, the the min-maxer is not a pure min-maxer. Like, they, they want to play an RPG, in, in my experience. It's just... It's just there's a there's a mindset there's a there's a mindset and and for some people it's just really hard to escape that mindset of becoming a powerful character or becoming or or um, optimizing their character uh, to be the best you know they may not be the best min maxer but like if if everyone else is being is you know is is playing some doofus bad. character oh I'm sorry yeah is doing doing intentionally bad things and yeah the one who's who's not is oh stands out. Um, yeah yeah uh how did you people end up here just 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 curious we're discussing tools that uh the game master can use to um better tailor the game to the experience they want um so it ended up on um the way the the kinds of uh decks work in praxis arcanum um, yeah, it's basically following the concept of how do you set up the game for the the type of gameplay and difficulty that the GM wants and that the players are looking for, and what tools do you have to to do that? So this actually does kind of fit with the the theme. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of other tools that I like immediately want as a, as a GM, but like it's, it's, it's one of those things that where like I never think about it until I'm like, oh, I wish I could do this, or I wish I could do that, like, um, like yeah, that, that's something that I've been using for adding mechanics to my game is like any time that I'm in a game myself, and it's like I want this and it doesn't exist, I write it down as a note for later. One of one of the things, um, especially this last week, you know, going and talking to different people at different booths, and you know, ev- everyone is trying to sell you their their fifth edition campaign, um, or their fifth edition conversion, or or whatever. Like there, like that was a big thing. And w- and one of the things that I begun to realize is that like like a system needs to tell you, you know, flat out, like what kind of game this is. Like, is this a dangerous game? Is it a deadly game? Um, like. Like I think it needs to be a little bit more clear. And some in some games and some systems are very clear. Like this game is, you know, you don't want to get into combat because combat will kill you. And some games will just be. That there are a lot of games that say that they're hyperly full that aren't, and then there's a lot of games that say, "Oh, this is a light fun adventure, but but it's more lethal than." D and D, yeah, and I, I mean, like, there's a lot of them that are misla- deeply mislabeled, is what I'll say. Well, yeah, because I mean, especially with um, a lot of times they'll be you know play testing with certain groups of people who are 
going to be either more cautious or more, you know, brazen about the various things that they do, not realizing that they will, you know, could just perish in the process, or people who are being super cautious and not realizing that this game is meant to have you just jump in and start, and, and start you know, getting into weird conversations and, you know, bashing skulls and, and, and every, anything that, like, a player would, would want to do if they saw, like, an action movie. Like, like th- there's... I think, I think a big clarification of, like, this game is for this. Um, and some, some rule systems do say that, and some rules try to skirt around it because they want to cater to as many people as they possibly can. While at the same time, their system really is only catered like towards like one specific type of play style. Yeah, it would be really nice if they gave information about what kind of game you're expected to get into. Like, like look at Drive Through RPGs criteria, and it doesn't actually give useful information. It's like this is a science fiction game. It's like okay. What kind of science fiction? Mm-hmm. It's like, are we looking at, you know, well, that's aliens? Like, yeah. are we I mean, that's looking only, That's at... almost a different like problem because you have the you have the limits of genres. Um, there's a there's a there, phrase for that, but there are genres, but there's also like within the genre itself, like there's a big difference between like something that's basically a horror game set in space and a game that's basically like 1960s cheesy B-movie in space. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's the game that is about uh, that is about society through the lens of sci-fi uh, that, is, that is like a third way out in the, those, the other field. Very different game feel. Yeah. I, I will say that the game's tend to be pretty clear on at least the game itself you know drive through rpg you know classifying stuff into you know sci-fi horror blah 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 like you know you know hard and set genres those are pretty are are pretty difficult because you know we all know that there's you know infinite numbers of fantasy there's infinite numbers of 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 sci-fi that you can that you can combine to make a certain game i i've never had a problem with a game telling me that it's one type of game and it being a entirely different like that's not something i've i've encountered at least no my issue is just that saying something is a sci-fi game does not actually provide enough information to know anything about the game Mm -hmm. like this does not tell me what time a game is the only thing i know is that it's not it's not fantasy that's all it's told me Mm -hmm. even even that like you know (laughs) anyway um yeah, drive through RPGs tags, unless they have changed them immensely, are positively useless for actually finding a specific game. But I mean, I mean, you find the similar problem in like a bookstore. Like you go into Barnes and Noble and you go and you go to the sci-fi section, and only only recently have I started seeing like little tags on the shelf that say like horror sci-fi, and they try to like, and they it's it's usually an end cap actually that they like put all the sci-fi books that are more horror. F- like focused on this end cap saying like here here's these books um that's that's kind of a more recent thing that i've been seeing but um but yeah that's 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 the 
that's the downside of trying to classify something, of trying to put everything into nice little neat categories. Yeah, but it's still useful as a tool for a GM to at least give some kind of idea of what kind of game that you're going to get. Like, even mm -hmm. if the criteria for it is not super clear, saying something like, yes, this is high lethality, you're going to, don't grow attached to your characters because they're not going to be around for three sessions. This is important information for a lot of players. They need to know this information. So does the GM so that they can pick a game that's appropriate for the players that they're going to be dealing with. Like you can modify things to a degree, but if the GM has to rewrite like two thirds of the game, you're better off picking a different game. Mm -hmm. Also, not every GM is, you know, going to be able to do that in a way that will actually still produce a coherent game at the end, particularly if they didn't, don't start with a pretty coherent game to start, but that's also a whole other discussion. Yeah, there's also the issue that not every GM will recognize this or try to do it at all. Like, there are definitely, especially newer GMs when they're just starting out and they don't recognize, like, obvious pitfalls until they fall into it, and then it's like, oh, that was pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. Like, um, as a GM, one of the big things that I, I, I would like to see uh, as well is when, when you're creating a game, when you're making a game and making a game system, sometimes your, your game system works with your game, with your world specifically, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think a lot of, a lot of these books try to say, like, or, or you could adapt it to whatever, to whatever world you want, but, like, it doesn't really adapt very well. Like, I wish more... more more games would be more honest with like, hey, this this system was built to cater to this type of world, to this type of setting. Like, it can work someplace else, but it's probably better to find a different. If you're if you're looking, if you're going to try mm -hmm. to make this, you know, space sci-fi game into like a street level cyberpunk game, like it might work, but it's not as good. It's not catered towards that end your options yeah. here are limited for that type of setting. And I think that's one thing we brought up here as probably the number one complaint we have about D&D is that it says it's, it's one size fits all and it very blatantly obviously is not. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it is moderately broad on the range of what it can cover, but at its heart, it, it wants you to go into a dungeon and murder stuff. Yeah, I mean... My my heart was broken this last week. Like I finally, I I go to this booth and I see this big, you know, like like Stargate the RPG, and I get super excited and I walk up to the booth and I like I see a just standard like set of dice and I look at everything and it's like, oh oh no, this is a D twenty system. Oh no, this is not what I want at all. Like I like to me that type of of setting in that type of world. Unless they do something very different with a D20 than I'm expecting, like, just immediately I was like, I, I don't think this will work as well as a D20 system as it would for, well, near, near any other system. Like, unfortunately, that's one of the weird things, too, is, like, the concept of D20 is such that when we see a D20, we, most people tend to think, oh, D&D. Yes. Like, if they see D100, they think percentiles. 
you can have games that use a D100 that is not percentile, such as Anima. You mm -hmm. can have a D20 system, or a system that uses a D20 such as mine, but it's not a, it's not anything like the standard D20 system. Mm -hmm. It's like, just because it's a D20 does not mean that it's D&D. So it, it depends on how it's done, but unfortunately, a lot of the time, yeah, it's like, this is basically just D&D with a a mod attached to it mm -hmm. and and i mean I, I i'll be honest i i totally read a book by its cover in that situation and i just walked away you know after after admiring you know the fact that it's a it's a franchise that i love and adore that i was just like oh i could play this but i don't know if i want this and i i could have cracked open a book and actually looked but i there's there's so much going on that i was just like you know what Maybe if someone later comes and tells me about it, you know, I'll, I'll take a look. Something you should probably at least look into on your spare yeah. time. Like you could probably do it. It might actually be very different, but mm -hmm. if it does turn into just being its generic D twenty system and it hasn't yeah. done anything with it, it's like with just different D and D races and classes just superimposed on 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 the setting. It's like that is not going to work with Stargate. It can't. No. If 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 it is like I mean, I'm assuming I'm deeply assuming, and you know, maybe someone can come and correct me. I I want to be corrected. I I would love to play a Stargate game that's that's built for Stargate and not having to convert a system that's already yeah that's that's, that's already there. Well, um, there's another thing I wanted to cover for. GM tools before we start running low on time. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing that had bugged me specifically, and it's why I added it into my game, and I'm actually very happy with how it works, is the idea of what information the players have that the GM is aware of. Because, like, in a lot of games, the GM actually doesn't really know necessarily what information they should give to the players. It's like an example that was, I think it was yesterday I was talking with someone about that, and it was like the idea is your character says they have really sharp eyesight, and it shows up as like a plus two bonus to your accuracy on combat rolls. So it's like, okay, it's really dark out. Do I see the enemy? And in a lot of games, it's not actually clear if you see the enemy or not. It's mm -hmm. like, do you have this information or do you not? And it's like, this is up to the GM. The GM doesn't actually know. They have to make it up on the spot with a guess. See, for, for a system like that, I'd, I'm, I'm more... I know a lot of people don't like to use the phrase like GM fiat or, you know, the GM just, you know, says it happens. Um, I know people like to, you know, have it encompassed in the system like like D&D, &D, like I have good eyesight. What does that mean? I can see in dim light up to X amount of feet as if it was daylight. Like that's a hard and fast rule that, as an example, Dungeons and Dragons uses. Um, but like to me, that's. I think it should always be something a little bit more vague. Um, the GM should read with the characters like what they're good at. Um, if a character specifically says that they have good eyesight I and that they get a plus two to something, 
it's one of those things that I just rule at at the moment, and I don't know if any specific rules would make me change my mind on that. Like I, I, I don't like when I run D and D. I never, I never run it as a dungeon crawl, even though that's what D and D is. And I should probably just use a different system in those instances. But at the same time, but at the same time, like, like I, I don't want to always. That's a lot of mental, like for lack of a better word, like back end of the game running in my head that I don't want to keep track of. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, know personally as a GM all the time that they're exactly 60 feet away or that they're exactly 50 feet away. If, if, if I have a board in front of me, that's easier to see. But when giving a situation like, okay, it's, it's approaching twilight and you're out hunting through the woods and an enemy or a, like a deer pops out, like, oh, do I see the deer? Uh, well, well, first, roll me perception to see if you see the deer. Um, oh, but I have good eyesight. All right, cool. Roll perception with X bonus, because you have good eyesight um, to see the deer. Like, I'm, I'm okay with doing stuff like that on the fly as a GM. That might just be me, and that might just be my, my propensity to play fast and loose with rules in general, but... Um, yeah, see, even I don't, that did not actually save me very well. Mm -hmm. like, like what you were saying, like, okay, roll with this X bonus to see if you see the deer. Mm -hmm. It's like the GM doesn't actually know if the player will be able to see the deer or not. This is basically coming down to the dice. Like, it's so random at the, that point. It's like, I did go through a fairly lengthy campaign of uh, Call of Cthulhu, and we missed so much of like the side quests and bonus missions because they basically came down to roll to see if you notice this clue, mm -hmm. which will give you enough information to carry on with us. If nobody has that appropriate skill, or if they have that skill and they roll poorly, because we had people with like 80% chance to succeed rolls and failing routinely. It's like, well, then I guess you're not going on the side quest. I, I mean, as, and like I said, maybe it's my style, but I never, if, if there's an interesting side quest that I as a GM want to introduce with the players, I will, I will find a way. I will not, I, I will try to my best to avoid railroading them into it. But at the same time, like, like if I think it's interesting and like I think the players would enjoy it, I will find a way for them to discover it. It may not be, you know, finding a clue right then, but it, it might come up like in a in a in a few minutes under a different scene or something like that. Like I, yeah, this is good GMing. But this like, is like, wouldn't it be nice if you had that as a tool in the game itself instead of having to learn this on your own? Would it be more useful? if you were just starting out again mm -hmm. to have already had this baked into the system so that you didn't have to do that. Possibly. Uh, I mean, like that, at that point, you, like I said, you're getting into, into different flavors of GM and, the, and their different styles and like how, how they like to approach it. Um, would I like it in the system itself? Like if, if someone ha just had like, uh, we'll do we'll do fate. If someone had the attribute excellent eyesight, 
um, if I was doing fate, I would I would say yes, that person sees it, or yes, that person comes across it, or or um, or something like that. I I I think some people definitely would like that to be a mechanic in the game. I'm just not one of those people. I'm yeah. I'm I'm okay with 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 a little bit of hand hand waviness right there. Hmm. Um, but that being said, you know, if it's important as a GM, if a character has, you know, you know, something to make sure that they are allowed to exploit, um, if, if someone has an attribute or a skill or something, uh, it's important to let them be able to use it. I won't say at least once, you know, per session, but like... To, to be able to bring it forward and be like, hey, this is a unique part of my character. I I want to exploit this. Like, okay, like let's 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 figure out a way to dis- exploit it together, or let's uh, let's have a rule that, um, like you never miss a clue. But as a GM, that especially in a Call of Cthulhu, because there is you know, the clues are important. If if you have someone who has has something that's effectively never missed clue then the game slowly just kind of devolves into everyone d- doesn't figure out but james here james sees this thing in the corner that everyone else missed and if that happens in every scene then that gets a little tedious yeah i think it would be more useful for that kind of thing where it doesn't say you never miss a clip because that's just mm-hmm. too broad and open-ended especially in call of Cthulhu, because that's basically the nature of the game Mm. like you have to find them but if it was something like you will always notice small details that are important when you're looking for them this is narrow enough but useful enough that it's not a broad catch all but it's like if your character is explicitly searching for clues and they specifically see small details then you can tell them details it doesn't necessarily mean that the player is going to understand what the relevance of those small details are it it could be one of those things where um and and not many games do this well there are games that do try to do this but there there's there's a thing where like if you say like i never miss small details when you're looking for them it could be one of those things where like instead of taking you, you know, five minutes to look for them, it takes you twenty minutes uh, to to find that clue. Um, very few games track time that well, um, and it's always it's always been a desire of mine to try and experiment with Shadowrun with like playing Shadowrun basically as an episode of Twenty Four, where um, or as a, as a season of Twenty Four basically, where every every session is one hour and you all have to figure out what's going on uh, and work through it. Uh, together in very distinct chunks because Shadowrun does track time just I've never played a game of Shadowrun where anyone actually tracked time shorter than you know half day or or quarter day increments Um, the issue I found with that is that usually time for how you actually use time in games it's usually a matter of you skip ahead to the important part Mm -hmm. I mean that's just how I, storytelling works. Yeah, but I mean, that's what I was saying, like, you know, kind of model it after, like, the show 24. Like, 
there's always an important part happening in that show because of the way that show is built. Um, you know, say what you say about, you know, the quality of the show, but uh, there's, there's, there's something to be said about a game system in which, like, I never miss a detail, but, like, what's... There's, like, not that there should be a downside to that, but there should be something that's, like, offsets that a little bit. Like, hmm. like I, I never miss a detail, but uh, if I... Um, like, if I fail the role, instead of, you know, instead of me finding it instantly like anyone else would, it takes me longer. Like, now time has passed. Yeah. Um, See, this would be totally fair and useful. This would be mm-hmm. interesting stuff because it's like, do you want to still spend the time to keep looking for it? You're pretty certain you can find it. But, mm-hmm. and then that puts it on the player that the player has to make a decision what am i willing to give up here it might not just be time like we're in a hurry i what do we do mm-hmm. yeah i think um i mean i'm also just a big fan of like every skill having a downside i, I love those systems like not like a downside but like there's a cost to everything and it's cost not it's not just you know mana magic points spell slots you know whatever your random you know currency in the game is that allows you to like to do stuff the cost the cost should be something a little bit narrative too probably so in most cases like not always sometimes i would say that the cost of something being like spell slots and D is actually a very large cost because that's how the game is built mm-hmm. like it is basically designed so that when you run out of spell slots it's time to rest like, this is the limited this is the major limiting reagent you should tell that to my gm um that's not a game that i'm gming but the the game that i'm in he likes to push us very much to our limits oh pushing you beyond your limits is a thing but it's like the point is this is how the game is built that when you run out of spell slots that's basically okay this is actually very difficult now like your your wizard your cleric you no longer have healing essentially like you're running into problems this is when dnd is trying to say this is a very difficult situation now that's why it's also designed to throw of weak, easy fights at you specifically to wear down your spell slots so that you are now actually kind of having to face a problem. Because as long as you have all your spell slots, you don't really have any problems that you can run into that matter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like, if he's trying to push you on that, like that's not necessarily a problem. No, no, it's it's it, it's it's not a problem. It's it's the first, it's basically the first Dungeons and Dragons game that I've ever played in, where I had to actually manage my spell slots. Where I I couldn't just go all out every fight and go take a rest. Uh, there was always several fights or several encounters uh, chained in a row, uh, and and we were encouraged fairly early on, like do not do not blow it all in one go. Like pace yourself because. I'm I'm not I'm I'm going to utilize this this tool, this uh this mechanic the way it was supposed to be utilized that no one else does. Well, that's kind of the point of it. 
for yeah. D&D. Like, the idea is if you aren't tracking your spell slots, the game's not balanced properly. Well, no. I, I mean, in, in every game that I've played, you know, someone's tracking it, and they are being tracked, but uh, the, the GM usually puts breaks between every single, like, battle or every single major encounter. And my current yeah. GM does not. He does not put those breaks in. And... No, I mean it in the sense they're supposed to be doing what your GM's doing. Like, yes. if it is meant to be a war of attrition. If you do not have a limit on your spell slots, like, you can restore them at the end of each battle, then the game becomes incredibly unbalanced very quickly because it's built with the assumption that you will be fighting, like, eight times per session. Mm-hmm. Which is weird because eight combats in a row is not something that it's people not something actually... I want to do. No, it's it's not really that fun, and it's also kind of awkward in a lot of ways. It's like, how do you actually come up with scenarios where you're routinely fighting this many times in a row, especially when mm-hmm. combat tends to take fairly long? Yeah, I mean it's a you know, it's a it's the dungeon crawler mentality. At that point, you're you're going through a dungeon, and you know, y- you encounter a group of goblins, and then you go further into the dungeon. Oh, look, another group of goblins. It's like go further into the dungeon. For some reason, not goblins this time, but some weird fungus. Cool. The goblins eat that fungus, but they're not around right now. So you got to eat that fungus. Um, yeah, but that's speaking. This is the thing of. There is a mentality that's built into the game mechanics, but it's not very expressly stated, and it should be. Yeah, that this that... is the nature of how this game is balanced. If you do not do this, the game breaks very blatantly. Well, that's, I mean, that's a fair point, and that's another thing to add, add to the GM toolkit, is, like, explain how your game is balanced. Like, explain, explain how encounters and everything are supposed to work out. Explain how skill checks and everything is supposed to happen. Like, yeah. Like, be be realistic if you want, unless it's not that type of game, and then be unrealistic. Like, you're you're someone going through, you know, some some crazy magic tech tower. Like, do you, do you get a save point every once in a while, or do you are you just so ungodly powerful from the beginning that you the whole point is just to just traverse this tower and demolish everything in your path? Um, just do a flip and kick and kick him in the head. There is an alternative for that as well. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm being very simple in, about this. No, but this is actually kind of important, though, for a distinction that you're making for the GM to know this information. Like, is this a game that's based on the concept of a war of attrition? You should be doing several combats in a row. Or is this every single fight is rare but very large and center stage in this sort of this is a life and death battle give give a hundred percent of your all use pull out all the stops every time it shows up like treat everything as a boss battle and you will die if you don't hmm. like this is a very different game from D. like that's how i do my game combat but that's because that's part of the rules for you regain all of your spells, all your health, everything at the end of every combat, no matter how short. It's like, even if it's only like 
a few seconds between the next combat, you still refill to full. If you do back-to-back combat, you still heal, which means your next fight that you have to fight again, that fight is going to be very dangerous. It's to the death kind of thing. You have to give it your all every time. You can't just be holding back and pacing yourself. And it's a very large mentality difference from how D&D is supposed to be played as opposed to how it's often played. I do want to clarify, though, that I know every time I come on, it always devolves into a weird conversation about D&D, and I want to express my sincerest not apologies, because I'm not sorry for it, because D&D is very important in this in this, uh, in this field, but uh, I tried my best not to talk about D&D as much as possible. Oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. We do it even when you're not here, and we yeah. don't have excuses. <laughs> we try not to, but it's like D and D is a very good example of a lot of tropes. Yeah. Like it and is also a, it's a default reference that almost everyone has. Uh, yeah, yeah, even people that everyone has that baseline. Them, even if people haven't played D and D. They still tangentially know the basics of it, usually. Like, you can talk about it, and they'll probably pick up enough of the concept. So it works as a good reference. Yeah. I mean, anyone listening to this podcast planning on designing their own, um, and they don't know about D&D, I actually want to meet that person. Because I, I, I want to meet who, who is trying to make an RPG who has never played Dungeons & Dragons before. Or at least is not familiar enough with the because that would be that would be an interesting person. I I can think of one person that I know hasn't played D anD D, but they at least have enough secondhand knowledge that they'd at least understand most of these references. Mm-hmm. So, still wouldn't be what you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I I I set the bar so high that it, if if someone does exist, like I said, I'd be interested to talk to them. Be like, what are you trying to do? Yeah, it's, I can see it happening. Like, I can see somebody who has only played Powered by the Apocalypse games, they actually do not understand, like, the mentality of D&D. Mm. Or anything similar to it, like Pathfinder, or any of a bunch of others. Like, OSR in general, like, they would not understand the mentality there. I think those people do exist at least in some amount i i'd say if and i'd say if they do exist the 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 uh population of those people is growing um with the advent of all these like let's or uh live play you know podcasts and and youtube and twitch uh like channels there's there's bound to be some people who have never watched a D version of one of those and maybe have never played D interested in the in the field so i can see those people I just, um, to me, it's just, it's still a rare, a rare, a rare group. Yeah. Also probably depends on which types of people that you hang out with. Like if you hung out specifically in Powered by the Apocalypse discords only, you'd probably run into those people semi-frequently. Mm. So if you really want to speak with them, there's probably not that hard to find it's just you'd probably have to change social circles to do it that's true and and i mean it, my narrow down was the person who also was trying to make an rpg on top of it all um yeah but those people like you said probably do exist i just yeah. 
I just don't deal with those people on a daily basis, personally, so. So, Kavar, since you're here, and you do GM fairly frequently, and you do develop a few of your own systems, mm-hmm. what kind of tools would you like to have as a GM? Like, why do you build the tools that you do into the <laughs> games that you make? Because you have some very interesting things that you add. So just what, kind wait, of tools, tools. I don't tell people. I don't give people tools to, to play my games. That's kind of my biggest weakness as a writer, and why I never publish any of this garbage, um, which is why I started laughing. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Kind of do. What do you think are, huh? What was that? What do you think are tools that I haven't deliberately designed? Because I'm genuinely curious. I would say things based mostly around the thematic aspects, mostly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I, I don't consider that tools. I consider that skeleton. But I understand what it is. I, I understand what you mean slightly more now. Yeah, it's something more in the sense of this is something that is built so that you understand what the purpose of the game is, and here's how you basically play it. Yes. Uh, I, the common tools I find useful to include are explicit statement of purpose and people's roles in like what you're going to be doing. Uh, <laughs> this is... And like statement of why this thing exists. Uh, uh, as a construct, and it or help you get a grasp of what the intended play is and why these systems come together. But the having that type of thing in a game is really important, and it's way more in PBTA and Blades in the Dark than it is in uh, other things. <laughs> I'll just say, I try to think of like Dean. I believe that. Uh, D&D is never asked the question why, like never answers the question why, and then people start trying to answer the question why, and that does a whole bunch of bad things to D&D, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, I was, I was just suddenly struck by it because we're talking about D&D earlier. Um, but yes, uh, to, uh, setting ground rules and, like, what you want to see, like, giving people tools for designing the experience into what they want it to be is something that's important. Uh, I do, I harshly recommend Session Zeroes, basically, even, but I don't recommend them doing, doing them for the sake of doing them. I recommend you actually do them with an agenda going forward and try to get everybody on the same page for what the game is supposed to be and what you, why you want to play it. Yeah, I mean, session zeros are are totally important, especially if you're creating your own world that's not a standard world. D and D, for example, if you if if you fuse the D and D system to play a fantasy game in not Forgotten Realms or not you know Mistara or whatever gray gray hawk whatever whatever, um, it's it's good to go over and and you know definitely give an idea of like what what is happening what are we doing here and why are we here 
why are we here? Why are we not over there? And what? Why is? <laughs> why are things broken down in this way instead of this way? Yeah, but I don't put a lot of that text in my uh, scrap documents. I only, which is, but if I was to make a published version of any of my scrap documents, I would definitely include uh, at least a paragraph as to why this thing is this thing instead of that thing, which doesn't make a lot of sense out of context, but it's like why it's made Mother Crone a uh, familiar hero guardian in mostly about witches rather than any other way of uh, organizing that. But Because there's a lot of ways I could have organized that but I did it with a very distinct intention. But yeah, the just generally stating principles is the most important tool. And also that I'm not sure what more I want to say. Unless Catrice knows how to force it out of me. Well, okay. I, okay, a more specific question then. So what, let's say that, like, I know that you've read through like a bunch of different games. So, I have played about uh, less so now, but there was a period of my time when I of my of my life where I was playing a new shitty system every three weeks. Yes, this is this is fun. So, if you were going to be given a new game to play, mm -hmm. and you didn't design it yourself, and even if it was powered by the apocalypse, or if it's not, yeah, it doesn't what kind of what kind of tools for the gm would you want to have that is normally lacking normally lacking is a big question because the the thing is if you get into the weird side periphery what tools are available and what tools you think should be available are variable uh, uh like for example there is a game that had very detailed rules about how to design abilities and all that and absolutely zero example creatures but exam but i mean D, &D has like an entire book of example creatures it it pu puts it sometimes multiple for each edition so you know that's, that's fairly standard in some parts of the industry um but, so uh there's are games where I deeply, sincerely wish that they had given the formulas for why they think something is balanced, like why this is worth this many points and why this is worth that many points, because they're very clearly our formulas and I had to go back and derive them so I could make custom ability. <laughs> I was... <laughs> I so I wish they had just given me the formula somewhere in the GM section. Uh, that, but that's a very specific example, isn't it? So it's this is why this is a hard question to ask for, answer for me. Like because it's like I, there's a lot of games where I don't need stat formulas and how I want to run it, and it's like if I can get away with zero prep, uh, I'm per, that is what my preferred method. Because it means I can war run more than two games a week, which is what I've gotten used to. Um, <laughs> oh god, just thinking back to some of the things that I did. Um, what I generally want uh, that isn't very common, other than 
a list of principle uh, principles in non-PBTA games, like if you can like steal that steal that engineering from PBTA games and apply them to all games, that'd be lovely. <laughs> I I'm not sure if everyone here agrees, but I can't think of any game that would not be enhanced by having that. <laughs> well, actually, I can think of one game, but that's a very stupid niche example. <laughs> uh, where anyway. So, like, it's a Catrice-level example. Like, yes, there is a game where I don't want a list of the game's principles because the game is about discovering what is intended through the court, through play, and that is the fundamental, like, journey of the game for... <laughs> so, stating them up front would be... It, it, like, the whole game is about siphoning you down those paths. So, like, saying it up front in that particular case would be disadvantageous. It would defeat the purpose of the game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Would, so, but any every other case, I would I would like you to say what your game is trying to do, and ideally, although very few games do this, and I I think it would be useful to have it somewhere. Say why you do this thing to do this. If it is because DMB doesn't, I don't like your answer, but I understand. <laughs> Well, it's, I think that's actually something that just designers should be thinking about in general. Like, why are you doing it this way? And if you don't have an answer, there's already a problem there. Like, did you actually design this or did you copy paste it from something else that you do not understand why they do it that way? Yeah. In which case, there's probably something wrong with what you've done. Yeah. I think that's like the journey that at least I know I went on, which was just things were in my game because that's what I knew and that's what I expected, but I never really critically looked at it to say, is this really delivering on the experience that I want it to? Um, and I don't know, that, that applies across the board for your game, not only just like game master related or, or um, tools, I guess, that you can apply, but it, just any rule, I guess, in the game or any structure that's there uh, should have a purpose. Like, okay, so we're, we're like rallying in absolutes. There is, a, it's fine to have connector and filler mechanics, like, as long as you admit that this is a way that like people would be used to engage it and I need something to do this and I, so I might just well go with a formula that functions mm -hmm. like that sure. that's justifiable yeah. in my mind yeah it's still thought put into it to a degree like you know why it's there exactly I think asking yourself the question and knowing why it's there is what's important okay yes uh I guess another uh general tool that I guess I would like to see is uh, da, da, da. <laughs> I was gonna make the joke that I don't actually believe that every every game should just include it uh its uh bell cur its bell curve its dice curve just to shut people up. I mean to some degree, maybe. <laughs> Just have that graph and like paint on like the beginning of the mechanic section. But yeah, I, uh, that is a joke. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, <laughs> well, we, we talked a bit about that earlier, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, to be honest, I like we did cover Belkers, but honestly, I will generally say for the most part, bell curve is actually not a good thing to have for the most part. There there are there are exceptions to this, but usually if your resolution mechanic has a bell curve, it's usually at a significant expense to the players knowing what their chances of doing things are. Yeah. Um and significant expense to the GM knowing how difficult something is. I mean, if it if it has PVGA or set target numbers like blades or etc., then the normal then the normalized like curve towards the middle is actually <laughs> that's a whole different discussion. Like if it if it's uh, staggered difficulty, then yeah, bell curves are a bad idea. But if you are intentionally trying to get a middling result uh, results in a certain range by engineering them, then that that is something you need to be cognizant that you're doing. Or it's not I just, I just remembered that GURPS uses 3D6. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But no, and something like that, it's relatively fine, especially part by the apocalypse, because it's only 2D6 and it's a small curve and it's relatively easy to know roughly how the curve is shaped and it stays a static curve at all times it's just whether it shifts one or two to the left or right yes and also it's very deliberately designed to give the number seven as often as possible like the game mechanics are designed around it producing about seven like near you're getting near seven most of the time is something that was designed into the game yeah it's still a little bit on the messy side but it's not that messy it's only it's only minor like if you're going to do bell curve i wouldn't suggest doing much more than that that is about the idea for where you could add a bell curve and it actually makes sense anyway what tools do I want? What tools do I want? <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll jump in here. I'll also say that I think, in some respects, like your tools depend a lot on your your game. Like I design tools for Praxis that work just for it because that's what I wanted to deliver on. Like the entire concept of having the game master with their own deck of cards um, was that these were the aspects of the. Uh, setting that the game master could then have physically in their hands. Um, and I use it as a mechanic that if there's ever something that uh, the game master wants to create a perturbation or like have some kind of um, effect that relates back to the world, they have this deck that's like, these are all the important elements that your player said they want to play with. Now you can just draw a card, look at it, interpret it, and be able to try to uh, get a sense of what the game might be telling you. Um, so that was a tool that I wanted the game master to have to be able to stay in the fiction of the world that the players have developed with them. I was actually going to ask you two questions I'd come up with that partially answered one of them already, but not fully. So to cover 
actually kind of partially answers both of them, but not fully. But like, um, one of the ones I was going to ask was like, what did you actually intentionally add to Praxis to help the GM? Like, I know you have quite a few interesting things like building up the game world and setting in the first place, things like you just mentioned with the, the GM having their own deck and such, but mm-hmm. what kind of other stuff have you added? Um, that was sort of the largest part um, for the in-game playability. Um, I wanted to make sure that the player, that the game master did have um, sort of a resource that they could use in different ways um, that related back to that game uh, design aspect, where you, you sort of sit and build your world that you get to um, play in. Um, so the way the game begins is to have um, all of the players fill out a questionnaire. Um, so this, in a way, is also guiding the game master through the act of building the setting and helping the players to build their characters. So it was questionnaire-based, um, and that questionnaire is, I guess you could consider it a tool that the game master uses to uh, design the setting. Um, I do have a few other aspects in the rulebook just to be able to help the game master as well about setting the bar for an etiquette of play. Um, so I do say there are three things that um, I want the game master to be aware of with the players at their table, and that is that they should respect each other, share the spotlight, and uh, let everyone play. So this is more about um, being able to enable everyone at the table um, than it is to, um, or I guess the, the ethos of the game is to make sure that you enable everyone. Um, there are also just some extra things about like lines and veils and X cards that work with the deck itself. So you write these down on one of the cards of the, the Game Master's deck, the, the Jokers, and then you're able to use these throughout. Um, so yeah, um, I think those are a few of the things that were designed specifically for how the Game Master can interact with it. Um, even just some of the mechanical parts of when things go wrong, the Game Master draws cards. These cards have uh, an interpretability about them, so each suit relates back to an aspect, and all of the words written on them relate to uh, uh, an element of the game um, that the players wanted to feature prominently. Also, on relation to that, I this is clearly, like, anytime you're saying something like, there's ways to interpret stuff. You are providing something for the GM to interpret. This is a tool for the GM. Like yep. you're giving them something to work with. What would would have been like your your mindset or purpose for how you were setting up the things that you present to be interpreted in the first place? Um, so I wanted the idea of the suits of the decks of cards to be meaningful both to the players and characters that are represented by those cards and for the game master and the the elements of the game so for example like the club suit relates to the physical uh, aspects so in the context of a character this relates to that character's ability to uh, work within like the limits of their body of their skill 
uh, using items and equipment that they have. And then in the context of the Game Master, these are sort of like physical impediments. Uh, these are barriers. These are um, like more of that sense of uh, physicality. Whereas if you look at it from uh, the, the hearts, which represent emotion or uh, your character's beliefs, back to the GM, this could be um, a conflict between NPCs or between an NPC that uh, trusted a player and they broke that trust or something like that. So it allowed the game master to uh, explore these different aspects that are essential to the game or to the, the characters. And really the characters are the focus of like the stories I want to tell in Praxis. Um, so having the game master be able to pull on the same levers that the characters are using and are building themselves up from, um, that really let the game master have control over the kinds of important elements of the game um, that I that I wanted to see played with. Um, so I, I tried to evoke that in a few different ways. The themes run throughout. Uh, a lot of the art reflects these like four core aspects, and I just wanted to make sure that I conveyed it as many ways as possible. So the individual suits have a custom art to them that explain what spades is, and spades means the weird, and that is the magical or supernatural element of the world that you identify. Um, and even from the player perspective, there's a custom section that just shows um, the same character, but colored in the lenses of the four suits so that you're able to sort of interpret what that character might look like in the context of using or growing with that suit in mind. Um, so it's also like a really good thing to add to, like, the, I just want to point out for a moment that, yes, it is extremely good to have visual representations, especially, like, here's the same concept, but it's expressed in different ways based on how, like, the character would change. Mm -hmm. So this is actually, like, really good visualization and helps, like, players GM figure out like this is what it should look like kind of thing yeah. or at least one way it could be interpreted yeah exactly and that's what I wanted to get across was just finding all the different ways I could do it whether it was in text or in the pattern of the suits or in some of the the visual art that I could put into the game um, that it conveyed the same message and that message could be useful to the game master to think of those kinds of challenges or or why a character fails a task can be variable, and it's up to them to come up with that extra little spice that colors the world. And I wanted them to be able to draw on as much material as I could present them with to, to inspire them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it goes back to like what Kravor was saying about having examples is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Like, not even necessarily always explaining explicitly why something exists though that is often good practice but just showing like here's a couple examples of how it could be done yeah this is what you can expect to get out of it exactly um even other things on that line like the examples um i also work through like example settings that you can um copy and paste for your own game if you wanted to, or even just examples of play to be able to help the game master understand what the what they're looking for, what the context of the game is. Um, mm. So, yeah. So, 
One last question since we're getting low on time, or at least one last question from me. I'll still leave it open for other people, but um, was there anything that you explicitly, Mark, had found that you liked in a different game for like GM tool that it was like, you're really glad that this existed in this game, but you didn't think it would be a good idea to add it to Praxis. Um, well, I think or the idea of like GM moves or like a move list is basically a tool for the game master that does something similar. It's the ways that the game master gets to interact with the world. And there's sort of a, a lens that they are able to look through to be able to do it. Um, and um, that's an amazing mechanic that I think should work in a lot of different games. Um, but for Praxis, I really wanted it to always have the focus on the action at hand and something um, more tangible coming from the actual action itself, that these are the cards that were flipped up by the action. The character failed. How can I interpret the cards that are in this pool to be able to tell me how they failed or what that consequence is. Um, so I didn't want it to come from sort of a generic place or a, a catch-all place of this is the kind of action that you could perform. Um, I wanted it to be interpretable and more open because a lot of the game is in that open interpretable space. Um, but I think that in general, for many games and probably at future games I would design, there are uh, there's a lot that you can get out of GM moves as a tool that uh, I don't think work for Praxis. Makes make sense. Alright. Um, yeah. Actually, I don't really have much follow-up for that. You kind of answered it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> um, does anybody have anything else they'd like to cover while we're still here? I think I've got. Yeah, I think. I think this. This has been illuminating, mostly because it's it's got me thinking about stuff that I didn't know I wanted in games. Great. I think that's the goal. Sweet. Okay. Sweet. We actually got done relatively simply. We're actually on time, so. Uh, Yay! I guess that's our episode on GM tools. So, uh, good night, everyone. Yep. Final up things. It's always night where you are, and we do post this on our Discord. It'll be included within the links wherever you happen to see this. Probably, uh, feel free to come by, and you can actually even listen in when we're doing podcast itself on Friday nights at uh. Actually, what time is it? 7 p.m. Pacific, is it? Yes. Yeah, so yes. feel free to drop by. And I think that's it for us now. So Great. Good night. Good night from Monty, Marco, Vara, and myself. Night.